Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are in the office um, on an off day. We should get sanctification points for this. It's Monday. At least three. Yeah, it's Monday, Thursday. Um, and we've come into the office as dutiful professors to uh, to do some work here at the college. And we thought I that... I actually just came just to record. <laughs> I'm leaving after this. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. Um, so we're going to do uh, another of our, um, in our series on the life and thought of Martin Luther. If you have been listening so far, um, we are in 1520. Um, we've come off the Leipzig debate. Uh, where Martin Luther had debated uh, Johannes Eck along Karl uh, Stott and Luther were against Johannes Eck there. And it's a big year, and we're going to uh, talk about three of the treatises that he wrote in 1520. Truth is, he wrote quite a bit in 1520, but the three big ones we're going to take one by one. Um, um, it's, uh, I believe the, Christ- the apocalypse is starting across the street, it yeah, sounds like. Meant, what we, is that, garbage truck? Or garbage truck's here. Good men doing the, fulfilling what their are they vocation to pick up like just a dumpster anyway the three treatises you have the um to the christian nobility of the german nation concerning the reform of the christian state you should uh, you, also, you should yell that we're recording a podcast like that, but they'd stop that. <laughs> we also have the uh babylonian captivity and why am i blanking on the third one that we're gonna uh, do Freedom of a Christian. Freedom of the Christian. So we're going to start, we're going to do them in chronological order. And so this can't, comes out in June, um, June 23rd, 22nd or 23rd of 1520. Um, and it's to the Christian nobility. Um, maybe just, a, uh, you can get into the historical details here, but just a broad kind of um, uh, sketch of what's going on here. Um, there is kind of a line in the sand going here. Johannes Eck has said, Luther is a problem. He is egging on the Pope to do something about it. He's inserting himself into, uh, in his way, defending the Christian faith against this heretic, Martin Luther. And as Luther will say, it's time for me not to be silent anymore, and he's going to start writing. And he is going to have a very uh, long and far-reaching document here, um, uh, kind of an open letter to the Christian nobility of the Germans. Uh, He's going to touch on quite a few things, and not all necessarily theological, but a lot of practical things as well. And it's not the tightest of all of his treatises, um, uh, but it's important historically because he's saying, this is what should happen, or this is advice to what should happen. And the theological background is, um, if the church i.e. the Pope, is not going to do what's right, then perhaps even the secular realm needs to step in. And that's one point of many that he's going to, that he's going to make here. And he's going to say there, the way the system has worked right now is that there are walls that have been put up that have kind of um, maybe insulated the Pope from criticism. And on the other side of the wall, Um, kept people from reforming the church. Um, But before we get into those details, um, any other historical, maybe some of the finer details of the the impetus for the writing of this? Yeah, I think um, maybe when we finish kind of the background, taking those three walls first might be a helpful way to approach it because he kind of outlines that at the beginning, and I think it's good you picked up on that too because that's somewhere I thought we should go. Um, So 1520 is just going to be an extremely busy year for Luther. Um, I don't, I don't want to keep harping on it, but the Leipzig debate really um, pushes him uh, 
right further into and the Bohemians are going to come up in here and Jan Hus is going to come up in here too but pushes him further to consider his uh his positions um to be in the scriptures and really um it's after Leipzig now he's had his um time with the church before Cayetan and now he's had his time before uh peers fellow academics and he you can just tell Luther is is ready to get going on it um we have the the bull we talked about last last time that is going to come out. I don't remember the exact date for that. Do you remember that, Mike? I don't offhand, but we can figure that out. But these are gonna many of these big treatises of fifteen twenty and well, he publishes something. I I just said it to you, and then I forgot it. There's something like eighteen uh, or nineteen publications. Sixteen, I think you said. Sixteen on good works, on the power. I can't remember the title, but it's on the power of the yeah. papacy. Smaller ones that are not as famous, but um, he's. By June, he's already written quite a bit. Yeah, and so he really, this is going to be a publishing frenzy for him in 1520, a writing frenzy and then a publishing frenzy. He's having these things published. A lot of these are not necessarily spurred on by individuals telling him to write, um, but it appears that Luther is just, you know, we all have sometimes we get on a roll and we're, we're fixated on something. And I don't, fixated can have a bad connotation. I don't mean it to have that here, but... um he is dialed in, maybe is a good way to put it, and he's going to be producing a number of writings, and you're going to notice the tone of these writings become more and more blunt. There's not much that's conciliatory in them, um, and he's really starting to outline what it is um, to be saved by justification by grace through faith, and then also to live um, in justification by grace through faith. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Mike, when you said he's the the main kind of the thesis of this this whole work and it's about 94 pages um, in the Luther's works volumes uh, is is going to be if the Pope and the councils won't reform the church then the emperor and the nobility have a responsibility too and he's going to begin after his brief introduction um, with a dedication to Charles V um, his most illustrious, most mighty, and imperial majesty. A n new emperor. Right. And he kind of has hopes, which we'll know won't come to fruition later. Um, but then t this is a very German writing, and he's going to pick up on themes in it as well that play to kind of Germans, um, not German grievances against Rome um, that had been festering for quite some time. And so you have a mix in here of theology of doctrine maybe is a better way to put it, but then also of practice. He's going to go through a number of practices under the papacy that have not been good for the pastoral care of people. For instance, benefices or um, people getting an income from a parish that they're not serving. Um, Rome trying to consolidate power there rather than having um, parish care or diocesan care centered on the individuals in that area. Um, untrained priests, so both doctrine and practice are going to play into this. And, and you get a sense, this is one of Luther's writings, where at least I get a sense, and maybe I'm reading it wrong, um, but that he definitely knows his audience and he's playing to his audience, right? He he knows the notes to hit that are likely to, uh, to go over well with a lot of those to whom he is writing. Um, yeah, and and I, I think there's a maybe even... An eschatological, we talked about this before, uh, an eschatological, I don't know, um, push that now's the time, time's running out, we have to do something about this. I mean, right. I, I think that's under 
underpinning all of that. And, and, and all and, of the writings of 1520, yeah. And, and he doesn't just go for the low-hanging fruit like what we would call today, well, historically we would call simony. I mean, that's some low-hanging th- fruit there, the, you know, uh, uneducated. Is that how you say it? I would say simony, but I've never been sure. Oh, maybe. Even in grad school, I just said it quickly because it was one of those <laughs> words I wasn't sure how to say. Um, but he, he says, here's what, I, here's what you should do for the university. I right. Mean, he, he, yeah, it's very, it's it's very far. It's sweeping reforms. Yeah. And some of it I think maybe I, I read and go, oh, okay, even when he kind of attacks Aristotle and then says, I'm, I like that part. I, I'm, you know, oh, somebody's going to criticize me for overstating it. I think he did overstate a little bit because yeah. like, the next page is like, well, okay, there's some things in Aristotle that we can keep. But he, what he really gets at there, and we'll get to it, though, is but he's at the end of the day, what he wants thrown out is Aristotle's ethics, not right. the logic or other writings. So he's taking, but just to, he's taking on scholasticism. He's taking on uh, the secular realm. He's taking on the papacy. Ultramontanism that you have this big control in Germany coming from over the mountains in Rome. Yeah, so there's German-Italian things. He's talking about pastoral care. I mean... He, you know, he humbly says... Financial stuff. He gets to yeah. usury in the, fu- in the fugers, you know, the charging of interest. Who am I to say that we can... Who am I to have opinions about reforming society? And then he goes on for 80 pages about yeah. what I would do. So so maybe if I, if I can just set the stage quickly, Mike, and then we can get to the three walls. Sure. Um, two quotes, I think, right at the beginning that really sum up what's going on here. And his biographies really love this quote from this, the, the... I guess it'd be the third paragraph... Um, of the work. It's really about uh, six lines down. Um, So they're short paragraphs for Luther. But he says, the time for silence has passed and the time to speak has come. And I just, I think that that sums up 1520. He feels it's time. He recognizes he may die a martyr's death, but he sees a break is inevitable. And not that he's leaving the church, but I think he just knows he's about to get the left foot of fellowship. Um, And then in that same paragraph, he says, in the hope that God may help his church through the laity. And so I don't know that he uses the phrase in here that I remember, but something that will be important will be what we talk about as the universal priesthood of all believers. Um, And he's going to really unpack that if Pope and um, the cardinals and and the bureaucracy will not reform the church, that Christian lay people have a responsibility to do so. And this is important to keep in mind for our day, too, Because Lutheranism, the majority of Lutherans in our world, well, I don't know with the third world now, but historically in Europe are living in a state church, right? Their experience is very different than the American setting. Um, And there's all sorts of tensions that have arisen there since the Enlightenment and secularism of what does it mean to have a state church when the majority of the people are not practicing Christians. He is appealing to Christians, right? These are princes who are Christians, And so we ought not read this only as he's appealing to the rulers. He's appealing to Christian laity who happen to be rulers who are in a position to do something. So this is not Luther for all time intending to set up a state church. Um, This is Luther appealing to rulers at this time. And um, the the word I believe he uses in in the German uh, a number of times in this time period is note bishop that you're to be an emergency bishop um the same as he can talk about parents being bishops and apostles in their home um that if the if the church leaders won't do it then the laity needs to work to reform the church so i just want to clarify that as this is not an appeal that the state should dominate the church in fact luther is going to be very clear on that throughout his ministry um and he's going to emphasize the importance of the office of the ministry but this is an appeal to Christians 
who happen to be rulers, yeah. so if, if that makes sense. If he was in England, he would be appealing to the monarchy. If he was in, you know, 2019 America, he would be appealing to... That, that gets ch- hard. Church, you know, I mean, the church council, the laity, the structure that a the A church laity council has. might be a good way to yeah. put it. You know, yeah. the, the board of elders, right? Or, you know, um, if it just so happens that the board of elders also like a prince. But... Um, <laughs> So I think those two quotes help set the stage. And then what I, I would like to do is how about I toss out the three walls and then we um, uh, uh, yeah. go through them individually? Well, or I'll you, read that paragraph. I think that... that uh, for well, the first paragraph or... For, yeah, for that. He lays out the first and three. Well, can I just quick no, throw the three and then go we'll ahead. go back to it? So he, the first wall, he says, is that um, the Pope and the Cardinals, the church bureaucracy claim that spiritual power is above temporal power, so they don't have to accept any correction from temporal power. And I'm just briefly summarizing this. Um, The second is that the Pope and the Romanists, as he puts it, reserve for themselves that they alone are masters of the Bible, so they alone have the right to use and interpret Scripture in an authoritative fashion. Um, And the third um, is that uh, no one can correct the Pope, right? He's above rebuke, correction, or reproach. Um, so why don't you go ahead and read no, what that, you want from the first, Mike? No, that's fine. That that was good enough what I was going to say. And just the point that it, it's kind of, it's fixed. It's the whole thing is, is not going to work. So, um, you know, the, first of all, the state has no, if we want to call it the state, has no power. Um, and even if they would come with scripture, the Pope is the one who interprets scripture. And even if there was a church council and not a secular council, the Pope's over the council. Right. So there's no recourse then for... Now, some of this may be, I don't know if it's totally overstated or not. Um, not entirely still, in a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. Council still had some influence and, and stuff like that. But what Luther is saying is ultimately, if you are going to look at the fine print's a dumb way to say it, but the the fine print, finally you cannot usurp the Pope even if all of the secular rulers were against him, even if all of the councils were against him, even if all of Scripture was against him, technically he... He's untouchable. And this is, I mean, this is not too much of overstatement because part of the reason it takes so long to call the Council of Trent and part of the reason even the Council of Constance, where Haas is burned, the papacy delayed calling, is that you had um, basically two big pushes in the church leading up to this time, which was conciliarism. I believe all, sometimes uh, you'll hear the phrase Gallicanism, and that's getting at something similar. It's This was a position that was popular in France. Um, so in Gaul, uh, which said that the council is above the Pope, um, or councils are. But then you had Ultramontanism, which said over the mountains, right, the papacy is above councils. And the position of the papacy was always clear, Pope is above council. And this is why there's a real reticence to call councils. Um, there was a fear that, that the conciliarists would get a big victory with the Council of Constance. And so... Uh, I mean, this is something that's clearly there. And insofar as temporal authority versus spiritual authority, I mean, this is something that comes throughout the Middle Ages as a continuing um, issue. If you're bored one day, go on Wikipedia and read about the investiture controversy. Um, But who gets to um, appoint bishops? Who gets to vest the bishops? And you have Henry and and Gregory, Gregory the Pope, Henry the Holy Roman Emperor. And, uh, you know, Gregory excommunicates Henry, Henry goes to Canessa, and uh, I think it's for like three days in the snow. He repents, 
That doesn't mean he's like out in the snow barefoot all this time, but he makes appearances. Well, if you're the Pope, you've got to forgive him. We did a, um, a winging it on this, so you can go back and see a, a winging it church history series section. Uh, but this, I mean, this has just been a long-standing issue. And so the Pope claimed to have two swords, and these swords were the sword of church and state. Um, and this goes all the way back to the crowning of Charlemagne, that the Pope, and Luther brings this up in here, that the Pope is supposedly transferring the Roman Empire from, right, the, the um, of antiquity, the Roman Empire, to now the, the Holy Roman Empire of the, the Franks with Charlemagne, uh, what becomes the Holy Roman Empire, um, known for centuries as that in the West. And so uh, um, he is reacting to what is, even if it's not always officially articulated, what was really the position and practice of the papacy throughout this time. He, uh, so he has these three walls, and then he's going to go and he's going to list. It gets into the 20s. Did you happen to mark, Mike? 27. 27 grievances. I apologize for having a cold, too. I'm trying really hard not to cough and snort in the um, I, my headset here. I, I really like this is his opening paragraph before he goes to the 27. Sure. He says, now, although I am too insignificant a man to make uh, prepositions <laughs> for the improvement of this dreadful state of affairs, nevertheless, I shall bring my fool's song through to the end okay. and say, so far as I am able, what could and should be done either by the temporal authority or by a general council. Um, and then he goes to 27, very scathing, <laughs> like this should happen. You yeah, know? And, yeah. Um, we should totally get rid of um, Aristotle and the university, and we should um, knock down these churches that are um, up in the in the woods that were said that there was miracles there. I mean, he's very. This is typical Luther, right? You know, uh, kind of a little bit of hyperbole at some places, and could be taken the wrong way. Like, let's go with torches down the streets, and you know, well, this is going to get played out. We're going to probably get there in about three, four, five weeks when we talk about the iconoclasm in Wittenberg. You know, you yep. can, when you're reading this, you could see yep. people getting worked up and saying, two arms right, right. now. And, and he does, even in this text, does say no to that. And so you really have to say... Yeah, he, he clearly says the Christian will never use force. No. Um, and then he says, burn down the, you know... Right, yeah, I mean, you read... This is the thing, I think. We sometimes realize there's, there's two ways that kind of to take Luther's works. There's to take them as he in his head has them when he writes them. But then there's to take them, if you're only reading certain ones and you're reading them in certain circumstances, you can see how they'd light a fire under people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens. He does that. And then uh, I don't want to say that it's his his fault that later on then you know, he has to temper things like, you know, the we'll get to the Peasants' War and stuff like that. Um, you got to read all of it. Yeah. And you really, and you got to be thoughtful about it. And, he typically, even in some of his commentaries, says something, and you're like, wow, keep reading. Yep. The next couple pages, he'll explain himself a little bit. Um, my favorite is in uh, 1 Corinthians 7.20 when he says, God doesn't even care if a man leaves his wife. You know, what is that to him? He's saying, you know, whatever. And then later on, you have to say, he says, but that husband owes everything to his wife. Every ounce of his energy, his time, and his whole body. So you just got to keep reading. And we see that in our own day. I mean, there, you'll have um, leaders, you know, um, talking heads or politicians who will give an extended speech, but there's a couple sound bites that get played, and they really can take on a, a life of their own. Um, one of the things he says at the beginning that I think it's important for us to bring out, so on page um, 127 of Luther's works, the American edition, 
He says, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. And I think that gets at a core point of what he's going to be getting at throughout this, um, that uh, you need to have pastors, right? You need to have ministers in the church. But baptism really puts all Christians in the spiritual estate. So it's not you have the spiritual estate, which is clergy, and then the temporal, which is laity. All the baptized are put in the spiritual estate. And so he's appealing to the baptized to do what he sees, to carry out what he sees to be of that which belongs to the baptized in an emergency situation. Um, And And this is where he'll famously say, okay, if you're on, you know, there's no pastors around, oh, I guess you just can't have church. No, that's ridiculous. The office is important, um, but it's not so important as to override, A, the gospel, but also just... Um, the purpose of the office, which is to serve neighbor. Right. And, you know, or in our own day, um, pastors out of town. So I remember the one time I was in Europe and um, one of our members had a baby premature and it was uh, one of the elders' grandchildren. And I remember uh, I must have got a phone call. I don't even know how I got the phone call. And they said, well, what should we do? And I said, well, baptize him, <laughs> you know, and, and this very pious elder, you know, well, are you sure? And, and yeah, now if I had been there, I would have gone down and baptized that child. Um, but sometimes in emergency situations, every baptized Christian, right, might be called upon to step up to the plate. So if there were no pastor, Luther says, find a learned citizen who's kind of known for being faithful and appoint him pastor. Uh, but this is in an emergency situation. But if we take maybe, the, so these, there's 20-something grievances he's kind of going to work through. Um, Mike, what if we kind of flip through and, and you point out or I point out any that uh, stood out to you? Do you have one in mind or do you want me to? You can start off there. So I think we're, we are in, by the way, volume uh, 44. And uh, we're starting on 156, right? These are the kind of the... Yeah. Ones there. Yeah. So you can start off, and we'll we'll. I know you don't have your cover, for, your dust cover for yours. Are I, you one of those guys who throws out dust covers? I, I do. See, I I love the dust covers. Like I get real nervous keeping, if they get bent. I've been keeping some lately, but. Yeah. I like using them to mark pages, but um, I'll just go with nine. I'll jump a ways in, um, and he says there the Pope shall, uh, should have no authority over the emperor. And I think this will be an important one, as we see for the course of the Reformation, too. Um, sometimes people will say, well, out of the Reformation came the separation of church and state, and that's just not true. Um, there's lots of crossover. Even in America today, there's lots of crossover between church and state. We don't have a, a total separation no between church and state. Yeah. Whenever I did a wedding, I was an agent of the state and of the church. Um, if the church caught fire, the state came and put it out with the fire department. Um, churches run schools that oftentimes have to coordinate with the state for curriculum, stuff like that. But I think that is an important one, number nine there. The Pope should have no authority over the emperor. And you can see here how this might appeal to, or at least at least Luther hopes it would appeal to, um, the, the young emperor, Charles V. In connection with that too, just that something that's important historically is uh, he also then does point out, and Lorenzo Vela had been the one who had kind of led the way at pointing this out, um, that the famous donation of Constantine was a fraud. Uh, this was the papal claim that Constantine had given the papal lands to the papacy. Um, and so we see Luther the Humanist also making um, use of uh, kind of uh, source criticism or um, you know historical analysis of... Letter- and one of the reasons they say it's a fraud is it's using language that just wasn't around at that time. 
Um, but so that would be one of them that stands out for me. Mike, do you have happen well, to have I, one? Well, I'd like to stay on, on nine just for a second. Um, he does talk about that the Pope still would be a part of crowning or at least a part yep. of, yeah. And so it's not... Which he has no in, problem if you want to have the ceremony still. Yeah, right? so it's interesting there. And, and I would imagine like uh, Frederick the Wise, but also Maximilian, the, the emperor before Charles V, when, when they would have read no authority over the emperor, they go, darn right, that's how we see it. You yeah. know, I mean, it's not like it's not like the emperor says, oh, crap, the pope said do this and jump, and now I say how high. That, that just wasn't practical. These were two political things vying for power back and forth. And so um, it, it just gives a little bit more theological oomph to um, what's already kind of there and maybe some clarity there. But the on page 165, um, third, second full paragraph, the Pope is not a vicar of Christ in heaven, but only of Christ as he walked the earth. Christ in heaven in the form of a ruler needs no vicar, but sits on his throne and sees everything, does everything, knows everything, and has all power. Um, it's kind of interesting, too, because vicar means substitute. That's problematic, right? Um, that the, the Pope then can speak for Christ, uh, can uh, say, yes, Scripture says this, but now I have this quote-unquote revelation that, I, that adds to Scripture. And yet the, the concept of a minister standing in the stead of Christ should not be lost. Right. And sometimes we throw away that. Um, and I wonder if he's sort of getting at that here where he's saying, you're in the stead of Christ when you say, I forgive you all of your sins. You're not in the stead of Christ in heaven as in saying, I'm with Christ in heaven here speaking with this revelatory um, power or whatever. And I'm not sure if he's getting at that exactly here, but that's what I thought. You see about some development I... of his theology of the word though. Um, if you don't have a one go clear ahead, in mind, ahead. I would go to 14 then. And he talks there about how the priesthood is, is kind of fallen in the sad state of the priesthood, people not being educated or equipped to serve. So he's going to say on page 175. Uh, so then we clearly learn from the apostle that it should be the custom for every town to choose from among the congregation a learned and pious citizen I entrust to him the office of the ministry and support him at the expense of the congregation. He should be free to marry or not. And I would just say two important things there is we see kind of the model that will develop in the Reformation. Um, oftentimes, this will be citizens of towns helping to support uh, sending a student to Wittenberg to study to be a pastor. Um, but the idea also of to marry or not marry. So in 1520 already, he's calling for it being permissible to have clerical marriage um, he says, you know, there's a lot of priests that the only complaint that uh, their people would have against them would be their weak um, in the flesh when it comes to um, to being celibate. And so maybe they have a concubine, which mm -hmm. to understand correctly, this would have been essentially a wife, but they couldn't have the formal mm -hmm. approval of the church for that marriage because they were a priest. And he's saying these men could serve well if the church would just permit them to marry and you see this in the secular realm too like this is a this is a marriage that can't happen between prince prince and uh you know somebody of a and this lower happens caste, with Frederick the wise right? yeah and so it's it's not as it's immoral but it's not as like and sometimes it was as immoral as we we think it is but um it was not always necessarily um just devious intentions right. here These and were, it, i think it shows how unnatural 
requiring celibacy mm-hmm. for everyone in the ministry could be, um, you know, is kind of getting at of look, this is these are people who could otherwise be faithful pastors, clerics that and would be better pastors, right? Um, Eighteen, he has I thought was interesting, and I I thought when Mike read it, maybe he recoiled a bit. Um, on page one eighty two, all festivals should be abolished, <laughs> and Sunday alone retained. Now, he unpacks that and explains, and he's largely getting at, you have all these festivals that keep people from working during the week. Um, And I forget now the number of festivals, but it was insane Mm -hmm. how many festivals would get in the way of of daily work. And and they would get drunk. It was a party. Right. And these these were festivals. These were parties. These were like Milwaukee church festivals with the Budweiser tent and Mm -hmm. the Bon Jovi cover band. (laughs) Um, And uh, here we see, too, though, how someone could read that, you know, like an Ulrich Zwingli um, could read something like that and take that to mean, yep, we should just strip everything away. Luther will go on and explain himself, um, and he's not necessarily advocating throwing away all the traditions of the church, but he does see here again an abuse of things. And then in connection with that, he'll say on page 187, my advice is to let the saints canonize themselves. It is Indeed, indeed it is God uh, alone who should canonize them. Um, and you almost see here he gets... The canonization of a saints is another way that Rome tries to exert control, right? Um, and he's he's you can see this flipping of things that's kind of happening is that God canonizes saints. And if you think of Paul's epistles, how often doesn't he say to the saints of God at whatever? Um, this flipping of righteousness and holiness and, and that I think we see already um, then come out in that section. Yeah, and, and the purpose of these is, okay— what happens is this kind of drunkenness and, and this party, and it has it's a disconnect sometimes to what it was intended to be. And instead of these holidays saying, this this marks time, you know, like we have a marking of time. We're going from Lent to Easter. We're and being an occasion to, to hear the word. That's right. not what they were at all. And, and I'm sure, like today, it's kind of a moneymaker. You know, it's a, a, a church festival. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but you could see how it could be corrupt. And, and he's certainly not against saint days. I mean, when he begins this... Um, with his preface there, he says, you know, on the eve of St. John the Baptist. Right. Day, you and you know? read his pastels <laughs> yeah. and he's preaching on minor festivals right. all the time. Right. So, uh, again, one of those occasions where you just got to keep reading. Um, 21, he has one of the great necessities is the abolition of all begging throughout Christendom. Yep. Yep. And I think as far as we sometimes forget, um, the Reformation did have social <clears throat> angles as well. And it's really out of the well, the Reformation that kind of the social welfare state begins to develop. Um, and so you had this notion that you had begging monks, right, in this vow of poverty. This was supposed to be next-level holiness. But he says in general, rather than treat, you know, the old saying was, we need the poor because they carry our alms to heaven. So we're going to use the poor. We have to have the poor so we can give them money, and then God will let us in heaven for being good. Uh, he's going to flip it and say, how about we try to get rid of poverty? And so he's going to give some examples in there of proposals that would help to care for the poor, and so we see a social aspect of the Reformation that was concerned for the poor. And then I, I can't remember. He's even got a 99%, 1% there saying if you take a flip, not, it's a little bit different than today. But, you know, if you got, you know, even if the church had was only had live off of 1% of what it had taken from, from the people, it would be just fine. And, and, and tied into all of this, of course, is all of these ways that the church was making money and quite frankly, fleecing the people, especially the German people. And so yep. he's saying, if you, it, it's, 
it's almost simplistic, but if you would take all the time and energy and money that you wasted on all of this stuff on the monks begging and stuff like that, you could actually do something good. And so you see quite a few components here. Works good and valuable. You should work and not be a lazy bum. Wealth is for your neighbor. Yeah. And, and so you already see some ethical components here that are going to play out in vocation, of course, but also in the reformation of society. And then 24... Um, just to come back to something mentioned earlier, um, he says in 24, we must admit to the Bohemians and um, that Jan Hus and Jerome of Prague were burned at Constance against the papal Christian imperial oath and promise of safe conduct. And he says even if there's problematic teachings amongst the Bohemians, and he doesn't ne necessarily assert that there are a bunch of those, but he says even if they were, um, they were not treated fairly and they need to be treated fairly and, and they needed to be give a, given a hearing so if you remember in 1519 at Leipzig that Huss was a big thing for Eck to associate him with Huss, Luther really here doubles down and now says, you know what, Huss wasn't treated fairly. There's and, a quick movement there, right, where he says, no, I'm not a Hussite, and then he starts to read the Hussite stuff. Yeah. And about six months later, maybe eight months later, he's already saying, hey, these guys were not treated very well. And before this, he even says, um, you know, okay, maybe I am on some case, cases, mm -hmm. maybe I am a Hussite. And I think there's a connection there because very quickly, he's already thinking about it, but in 1521, um, well, already uh, the idea of um, free passage for him is a big deal. And don't think that everywhere he went with the so-called protection of travel that he's not thinking John Huss, John Huss, John Huss. I'm going to get there under this uh, guise of, of uh, safe conduct and travel and I'm going to be burned at the stake. So he, there's a connection there. Yep, yeah. and we've got about, I think, five minutes maybe, Mike, sure. so I'm going to keep pushing, but notice how I'm using my dust cover to mark the things that I want to say. <laughs> um, 25, and let me unpack this, Mike, and then I'm going to let you react, but I think this is the last big thing we want to hit on. 25, he says the universities, too, need a good, thorough reformation. He then speaks about Aristotle and says, and yet this dead heathen has conquered, obstructed, and almost succeeded and suppressing the books of the living God. And so he's going to get at the introduction of Aristotle and Aristotelian language into how we do theology. You're absolutely light, right that he backtracks a bit, and he says, um, I would gladly agree to keeping Aristotle's books, the logic, rhetoric, and poetics. Um, he especially seems concerned with Aristotle's ethics, but the use of Aristotelian terms in theology. And so he kind of takes a dig at the, the theologians of his day. He says, our dear theologians have saved themselves worry and work. They just let the Bible alone and lecture on the sentences, mm -hmm. um, which would be Lombard sentences. Um, but he then goes on, the number of books on theology must reduce, be reduced and only the best ones published. And here's something his opponents had fun with, like you keep saying that, Luther, but then you write more and more books. Mm -hmm. um, but he says, above all, the foremost reading for everyone, both in the universities and in the schools, should be the Holy Scripture. And for the younger boys, the Gospels. And here I think is an important point. And would to God that every town had a girl's school as well, mm -hmm. where the girls should be taught the gospel for an hour every day, either in German or in Latin. And here we see, just as with the poor, another social component, the Reformation will be a big push towards what we consider public education um, or education for everyone. And here then, um, and he's going to write later on this, but he knows the objections to how can I send my boy to school? I need him to be working the farm. Or how can I send my girl to school? She's a big part of the economy in the home. Um, but if we're a people of the book, we need to be educating people to be reading the book and to know law and gospel as they 
um, will be major practitioners in the home for their children with it. Yeah, and you see Lutheran education really grounded in what we call the liberal arts there. It's not just the servile arts, you learn something, but we have each person creating the image of God is therefore deserving and worthy, not of any, not because of anything they did, but the chance to be educated, uh, the chance to think, the chance to uh, ponder, um, the chance to do a very human thing as opposed to the animals, which is to have wonderment and to think about beauty and to think about truth and all of these things. And I, I did like what he said, yeah, we should teach Aristotle, and but like, let's not get lost in it. You don't have to read all of it. Let's get an abridged version of Aristotle. It's important to do that. And um, and read him to read him, but not don't do theology according no, to him. And, and we've mentioned this before. The problem with Aristotle is when you try to take his categories and you shoehorn scripture into these categories. And, and more and more, I think, you know, Luther does use these terms and talks about like Gabriel Beale, realist, anomalous, and stuff like that. But the truth of the matter is he's not bound by any of those things. We tend to say, we want to we categorize everything. We say Luther was a, yep. or I am a whatever. And instead he's saying, how about this? Truth derived from natural law in some circumstances with its limits, but ultimately revelation in scripture that's where we go, and if other, these other things, these other categories, these other way of thinking helps out, great. But you don't start with these structures and then try to do religion that way. And, and we have that problem today. We say, um, here is, here's business, here's leadership, here is whatever, and then you find the passages in Scripture you want to fit into those categories or those disciplines, yep. and it's backwards. It's completely backwards. And eventually down the, the line, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bite you. And so that's why he says, just get rid of Aristotle. Well, okay, it's fine, but proper use. Proper yeah, and use. I think just the last one I would note is he raises some concerns about, um, and just to get to the social aspects again that are in here is why I want to bring it up. Uh, he says, in this connection, we must put a bit in the mouth of the Fugers and similar companies. So the idea of, of loaning money for interest or the the early, what, what we would call the beginnings of capitalism. Um, it's important to see at this point that, and Carter Lindbergh is always fascinating to read on Luther and kind of social things. Um, and sometimes he really upsets people because we don't, People don't read it as in Luther's reacting to his own day and these changes he sees taking place. But just to drive home again, how um, wide-ranging this to the Christian nobility of the German nation is, um, as Mike said, he's going to say, okay, I'm going to put on my fool's hat, and then, you know, who am I to give um, suggestions? But then he's going to make suggestions that are ecclesiastical, they're social, they're political. Um, it really is a wide-ranging document. Yeah, and I think uh, that's why it's so important, even though it, it can be a little frustrating to read because it's so all over the place. Um, but um, it's, it's a different kind of document for him, and it'll be uh, quite different than some of the, the 1520 treatises that are going to come later, which are a little bit more focused, at least on at least topically focused, not that his writing was always focused, but more topically to uh, one thing um, or a few things. And uh, we'll get there in our next episodes. Unless you have anything else, Wade? Nope, I would just say uh, probably what Luther would want you to do in the spirit of 1520 would be uh, let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a tank. I 
set him up another round. Oh, set him up another round. Oh, set him up another round. Oh, one more round won't get me down.